Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to turn with me in God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we continue our way through the text this morning. That song we just sang, it holds the key to understanding the hope, the reason of all that we have in Christ. The promise that we will one day raise from the grave, that we will one day be restored to this earth, that we will walk again on this planet with our King, with our Savior, with Jesus Christ. And this life that we are currently living, this life has equal importance and equal significance, but it is ultimately a preparation for the eternal life that God's people have inherited and are receiving. Before we jump into the word this morning, I'd like to just take a few moments to pause and pray and ask God to, just to bless our time together. So if you would, please just bow with me in prayer. Father, we come to this text regarding overseers, shepherds, elders, as they are referred to within your most precious, most holy word. Those individuals which, by today's common vernacular, we refer to as pastors. And Lord, we see that you have given very clear guidelines, very stringent expectations on the kind of man that we are to be looking for. You say nothing in your word about academic degrees. You say nothing in your word about uh, great learning or great uh, pursuit in university. And yet at the same time, Lord, you do call upon these individuals to know your word, to know it to have studied it. But the thing that stands out to us the most, Lord, is that you are looking for a man whose heart is faithful, for a man who is true, not to himself, as we so often say. This isn't a man who is just being true to himself. He's being ultimately faithful to you and true to you. So, Lord, as we look at this text this morning, there are incredible implications here for us But there are also, by extension, implications, not only for pastors, but for all who enter into the workplace and how they are to serve in their respective vocations for your honor and your glory. And so even though we are looking specifically at the requirements for pastors and elders and overseers, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would help us to see these requirements as we reflect upon our own pastors and as we consider as a future in the future as a congregation whenever we're calling a future pastor that we would often turn back to this passage but I also pray God you would show us how every man and every woman is to strive in their respective field for your glory we pray God that you'd open our eyes to see that this morning by your spirit through your word And it is in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. Now, as a church, you are undoubtedly aware that uh, we have three men with whom we are working who are pursuing eldership here at First Baptist Church. I'm obviously referring to James Casson, who also serves presently as our chairman of the deacons. Uh, I'm also referring to Tyler Walkton, who uh, is involved in a number of different ministries here at First Baptist, be it tenant talks, leading care group, 
And uh, there's a third one that many of you may have met, may have uh, interacted with a bit, but you don't get to see him as often. And that, of course, is Keith Owen. And Keith Owen is uh, leading the church in Logan Lake. We are in the process of helping to plant another daughter church in Logan Lake, and they're doing quite well. Of course, you can read about that in the uh, book of reports. But uh, Keith Owen gives leadership and oversight to that, to that group in Logan Lake, and so you don't get to see him as often. But these three men have stepped forward, and they have expressed to us as a church this internal desire in their heart, which they cannot deny, that God is calling them into a leadership capacity within the church, a shepherding or pastoral capacity within the church. And as a church, First Baptist, while we celebrate together with them this internal, subjective sense of calling, it's incumbent upon all of us as a congregation to carefully scrutinize their lives, to carefully look at their character, and to make sure that there is, with that internal, subjective sense of calling, an external character that matches what God's word says a pastor should be. And so as we look at this text this morning, some of you are here and undoubtedly you're thinking, okay, this is going to be all pie in the sky academic stuff that just relates to pastors. But right off the get-go, I want to, I want to take that illusion away from you that somehow you don't have to be attentive to this passage, that somehow this isn't important because this only pertains to pastors. The letter that Paul is writing to Timothy here It is indeed written to 1 Timothy, but it is written within the context of a congregation that has been gathered together in the city of Ephesus. And the idea is that this is a letter for the church, not just Timothy, and that the church together has to read and hear and understand these qualifications because the ultimate proving ground for eldership, pastoral ministry, is not in the ivory tower of academia. It's right here in this church, not a church. Not other churches, bigger churches down on the lower mainland. The implication is that within our church, within this church, First Baptist Church, there are men that are going to come forward with a sense of calling from God on their lives to lead you. And even for our young ones who are downstairs in Sunday school right now, Even within that group, undoubtedly, there is going to be a little boy within that whole mix of them that is going to say to a mom, one of you ladies in this room, Mom, I think I would like to serve as a pastor. And so we need to approach this text, not from an academic, simply intellectual sort of, yeah, that's kind of fascinating, thanks for sharing, let's get on to the next one, but as a crucial, crucial piece of instruction for the health and the longevity and the ministry and the testimony of Jesus Christ here at First Baptist. I can think of nothing more sure to destroy a church than a bad pastor. This is where you all say amen. I think we all have a horror story or two to which we can relate. So this isn't simply academic. This is incredibly practical. 
I thank God that he has brought us these three men. I thank God for James Casson. When you consider all of the different ways that James is uh, involved in ministry and, and in a totally vocational, you know, he, he, not, not vocational, bivocational, voluntary capacity. And when I think of all the ways that Tyler is involved already in ministry, and when I look at the work that Keith Owen is doing up on the hill, such a great work that God is performing there. I know that there is clearly a mark on these men's lives towards ministry, and I'm sure all of you would attest to that as well. And yet, we need to see something just a little bit more as we consider these men. Not simply that they're faithful and that they're involved. We're looking for something a little bit more. And uh, that's not to discredit the ministry that they're involved with. I think of uh, all the ways that James is serving with regards to music ministry with his violin as he leads our our board of deacons and elders, uh, as he presides over business meetings. Hey, there isn't anybody in the world other than just us parliamentarian geeks who just love the finer points of Robert's Rules of Order, okay? And the church said, amen. Amen. And yet this is a man that has given himself to studying this alongside of other notable individuals uh, in order to you know, help preside over leading our, our different gatherings and make, coming to business, business type decisions. I think of uh, Tyler Walkton. You know, from the first moment that Tyler uh, stepped forward to become a member here at First Baptist Church, we were having a membership class and there was an individual there uh, who was asking questions who'd come out of a church background where there were some Uh, wrong ideas perhaps that had been taught and there was a wrong emphasis placed on certain things. And I remember watching in that new members class, Tyler Walkton, who's there prayerfully pursuing knowledge and information about our church, trying to decide whether or not he wants to become a member of our church. But even then in that moment, when he's not even entirely sure that he's he's gonna commit here to First Baptist, this dear sister is asking questions and obviously is struggling through some different things. And I remember watching in that new members class him just kind of leaning over and encouraging her and uh, giving her some scripture to think about and sharing his own personal testimony that, of different things that he had gone through in his own walk with the Lord. And I remember right there in that moment seeing the heart of a shepherd. He wasn't even a member here yet. And then you consider Keith Owen. They have planted a church in Logan Lake. It's not even a year old. They're running 70 in attendance. Uh, in, in atten- yeah, that's right, in attendance on a, on a Sunday morning. Is that not an amazing work of God? Here's a man who said, here am I, Lord, send me. And the Lord sent him. And I sat with him yesterday morning at men's breakfast, men's fellowship, and he shared with me all of the things that he is struggling through in pastoral ministry, which he is absolutely convinced he had no idea this is what it was going to be like when he got into it. And that is a testimony that most pastors will tell you. In seminary, I never once took a course on soundboard technology. (laughs) You would be surprised to hear one of my recurring issues in pastoral ministry is not so much, I mean, I do shepherd you guys, but you're shepherding technology in a sense. You know, you're trying to get it to work right. And uh, he's encountering that himself up in Logan Lake. As we sat and we talked, he talked about all the things that were coming at him, different concerns within the church, theological, different individuals stepping forward who wanted to be baptized. Some of these individuals are legitimate candidates for baptism. Some of these individuals 
Perhaps we'd like to see a little bit more fruit in their life just to make sure they're truly repentant. And then how do you address these different concerns? And then you have people pressuring for certain things to be done. They're, in a, they're meeting in a strip mall there, and it's, it's a strip mall. It's not exactly a church facility, and they're wanting different accommodations and renovations to be made. And, and how, do you, how do you shepherd that and inculcate a sense of patience and contentment and balancing budget and doing all of these different things, which doesn't have a lot to do with getting into the Word and just preaching God's Bible Sunday by Sunday. And so I asked Keith yesterday, I said, so this isn't what you expected? He says, no. I said, so do you think maybe God has a different ministry for you, a different calling perhaps? And he looked at me and he said, no. It's not what I expected, but this is where God has me. And that's how we need to approach this text this morning. And Pastor Ryan did a phenomenal job. He did a phenomenal job getting down at surface level, going through these qualifications point by point. What I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to just zoom back up to 30,000 feet and see these things as a whole. So look with me, chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. Ooh, a lot of boom there. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Well, let's start right there. The last word of the sentence is that it's a task. It's a job. Elsewhere, this word would be translated job. You know, you might enter into this profession with all kinds of ideas of what it's going to be like and how great it's going to be. You might have in your mind this sort of fantasy daydream that you're just going to stand up there with your Bible in your hand. You're going to start preaching and the masses will come and millions of people will flock forward and there will be lots of people willing to help out with lots of different things and you won't lack for people to lend a hand and chip in and pitch in. The finances will flow. The volunteers will be present. Life will be great. It will be like Eden an oasis right here because you, you saw fit to open God's word and preach it. Now, of course, you pray this man isn't arrogant enough to actually say that out loud. Uh, But I would dare say that most men who aspire to the office of pastor, they do hope for that. And what's wrong with desiring that sort of thing? And what's wrong with thinking that somehow you might be the instrument or the tool that God might use to actually achieve such a grandiose vision, such a a wonderful oasis in a desert? But the text is clear. It's a job, which means it's a job that takes place under the curse. It's a job that takes place in a fallen world. It's a job that's going to involve drudgery. It's a job that's going to involve effort. It's a job that's going to make you cry and sweat. It's going to be hard work. Let us not overlook the fact that it is a job. Absolutely, the scripture says it's a noble job. Elsewhere, we might translate that Greek word heroic. It's a heroic job. There is a certain beauty to it, a certain nobility to it, a certain majesty to it. But all that aside, at the end of the day, there's no escaping the fact that it is a job. And as we consider this job in light of all of the characteristics that come after that describe this man, we understand that this is a very taxing job. This is a job that will require a man who is refined and firmly forged in the fires of life. 
I'll give you an example of this last week. I was painfully reminded of this on Tuesday. I had taught Greek to a bunch of grade three, grade four students, one grade two student, and we were teaching Greek, and I had received a text message in the midst of my Greek class alerting me to a very pressing and urgent need. We got through Greek, I dismissed the students, and then I realized I have a meeting right afterwards with one of the parents who's also wanting to learn Greek, and I had forgotten about that meeting. And so I rush upstairs, and I saw her sitting there, and I said, okay, okay. And immediately I'm like, oh man, oh, I, I forgot about this meeting. And I said, okay, let's go downstairs and let's, let's talk through, uh, through Greek. And right off the bat, as we're interacting, we're going back and forth, I'm, I'm rushing, I'm rushing. And uh, she says to me, she says, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. You, you seem like you're talking really, really fast, and, and you seem like you're rushed. And I said, oh, you know what? You're right. I am. I'm rushing through this, and I apologize. And I had to be reminded of the fact that as a pastor, your job is to give all your time and attention in that moment to the person you're ministering to, to be present. But one of the things that they don't tell you, one of the things that they almost never make you aware of in seminary is that at any given moment, someone has died and the family needs you to go and to meet with them and to start talking through funeral arrangements and to start offering comfort for those who are grieving. At any given moment, while you may be contending with a funeral, someone else, particularly in this church, is going to call or text and say, hey, there's a baby that's been born. Why don't you come to the hospital and rejoice with us and celebrate? Why don't you come and meet this new little critter that God has brought into the world and you're full of joy and at the same time you are full of sadness. In the midst of all of that, someone says, you spelled my name wrong in the bulletin. How dare you? You are the devil. And of course, you are overcome with grief. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you and insult you in that way. I will be sure to talk to whoever's doing the bulletin and get that corrected. And as soon as you're dealing with that, some piece of technology is going to break, be it the soundboard, be it the copy machine, be it the computers, always the computers, projectors, everything, heater, furnace, roof starts to leak, stuff happens. And so you are in that moment being called upon to minister to a grieving family. You are in that moment being called upon to rejoice with a celebrating family. You are in that moment dealing with any number of technological failures which are going to have some bearing, some impact on the worship of God's people on Sunday. In that moment, you'll also probably receive a text message from your wife, which happened to me this last Last week, the dishwasher is broken. <sighs> issue after issue after issue after issue, it is flying at you from every direction finances, attendance. And that is to say nothing of the individual who is struggling with normal addictions, who is being besieged by temptation to alcohol or perhaps pornography or or some other concern and he's calling upon you to pray for him. That's to say nothing of the temptations you experience in your own heart. God calls upon for you to have control over your own struggles. That's to say nothing of all of those other little details in life. I've only given you some of them. And so always, 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 with every individual that you shake hands with at the back door, with every individual that you encounter in the hallway, they will sometimes see you as a man that is coming apart at the seams, that is flying off the handle because you are getting nailed from every single direction. And in that moment, the man that God is looking for is a man who is under control. 
not flying apart at the seams. A man who can understand in the fog of war, in the midst of combat, when you're taking shots from all sides, you can pause, you can take a deep breath, and you can recognize I've got about a two dozen situations that need my immediate attention. And I'm going to stop here in this moment and I'm going to give my heart and my attention and my focus to helping this person. And I'm going to trust God with the other 23 situations that I can't attend to just like that. That's one thing to say. It's another thing to do. And that's at the essence of all of these qualifications. I mean, when you stop to think about it, you see here a man who can't be given over to certain temptations. He can't be angry. He, have to, he has to have control over his emotions. He, he can't be a, a man who's driven by money. Surely he can't be a man driven for money. He has to be a man who is content and confident and trusting in the Lord. You see here a man who has to be hospitable. I mean, he has to have his house well managed. I mean, all of these different qualifications are thrown out there. All of these different situations are presented because... Because at the end of the day, if you got a guy who cannot, by trust and faith in Christ, overcome basic temptations, who cannot do simple things like showing up on time for work or meetings, who cannot do something simple and basic to life, such as leading his family in a manner that is God-glorifying, if he cannot bring control and God's order and peace to all of these different spheres and arenas in his life, then how will he ever maintain responsibility for all of those things and at the same time take on the responsibility of God's household? It's daunting. You say, okay, pastor, and uh, undoubtedly, uh, James and Tyler are saying, what exactly am I doing here? What, what a, you know, did, did, am, I, am I really, what am I thinking here? And this is, uh, this is the situation that confronts us. I have tried to share with these men the reality of ministry that was never shared with me. And as I've shared this reality with them, they are only further encouraged and further inspired and the truth is, if you were to ask me, having been doing pastoral ministry for 15 years now and looking back on it all, would you have done it differently? If you knew then what you knew now, would you have somehow changed career paths? And the truth is, a lot of men step into ministry and they see what it truly is and then they step out. Is that, and I've seen this in my own personal experience in terms of just from my own seminary class, my class in seminary at Fort Worth, uh, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, I'm the only one left. Out of a group of 65 men, I'm the only one left. And I have uh, lots of dear brothers from that group. And so you're sitting there thinking, so are you going to quit on us soon? <laughs> God willing, no. But I have to answer it that way. God willing, No. And that takes us back, and, and this is the truth for these guys, this is the truth for Keith Owen as well. When you come face to face with the pressures and the reality of the situation, do you want to quit? And the man who's truly called by God is the man who says, despite all of that, and as suicide and as crazy as it sounds, I still want to serve. Look back at this text here. It says, if anyone aspires to this office. 
Now, and again, Pastor Ryan did a fantastic job drawing out the human element of this word. If anyone has it within their heart, this ambition to care for souls, this, this desire to look over uh, the, the Lord's people and to care for God's church, if anyone aspires to that, he desires a job that is a hard job, that is a difficult job, which requires the greatest possible character imaginable. It's a noble job, but it's a hard job. If anyone desires that, then he desires a good work. He desires a noble task, if anyone. Notice that phrase right on the front end of aspires, if anyone. The assumption being that there will be some, that there are among us people who are crazy like this, who are going to want to do this sort of work. And don't misunderstand me. It's rewarding. I don't want to paint it all negative. It is absolutely rewarding. But the scripture is saying, if there is among you a man who wants to do this, then he is going for a good work. If. And before that is this expression, this saying is trustworthy. Now, I can recall the first sermon I ever preached. I studied the text. I dug into it. My pastor gave me an opportunity on a Sunday night, and I really, really researched it, and I stood up, and I thought it was going to be the greatest thing ever. I'd been working on about two or three sermons, and I, blew, I thought it was going to be like a 30-minute sermon, and I blew through everything I had in about eight and a half minutes. I mean, that's what it was. And I sat down, and I was sweating bullets, and afterwards, the second guessing came. The questioning came. Did I preach correctly? Because I had it all written out. It should have taken me 30 minutes by my own stopwatch when I read it to myself in the mirror at home. And yet somehow I blew through it in six and a half minutes. Surely I preached some kind of heresy in that six and a half minutes. I don't even remember what I said. (laughs) And so I'm sitting there and I'm sweating bullets and my pastor comes to me and he pats me on the shoulder and he says, you did a good job. But I'm not sure that I did. And uh, if I did preach heresy, he never pointed it out to me, thankfully. Uh, and we had the kind of church, kind of, it was a good church, like you guys, gracious. It's like, okay, he, he messed up. It's okay. We know what he really meant. We're sound. He's got sound theology. We can forgive him for misstating the wrong word at the wrong time. But I wonder if Timothy wasn't the same way. Always second-guessing himself. Always wondering whether or not he was doing the right thing. You notice this phrase, this is a trustworthy saying. It's an unusual expression from the Apostle Paul. He uses it, and he only uses it in the pastoral letters. And it's a recurring expression that he uses over and over again. He uses it five times in the pastoral epistles. He uses it three times here in 1 Timothy. He uses it again in 2 Timothy. And he uses it a fifth time in Titus. And if we're going to understand the depth of this expression, if anyone aspires or desires or is stretching themselves out to do pastoral ministry, we're going to have to understand exactly what's going on there in that trustworthy saying. It is significant, and the reason why Paul is giving this to Timothy is because he knows that when Paul is questioning and doubting and suspecting that he's not the man for the job, that he doesn't have what it takes, he is wanting Timothy to reflect back on certain core principles, core truths that he can rely upon as he is fighting the good fight, as he is engaging in pastoral ministry. And so he makes this statement, this saying is trustworthy. But again, to really understand that expression, this is a trustworthy saying, we'd have to look at all of these trustworthy sayings, and we'd have to know, having read all the letters, that they're all pointing to something that may not be inherent here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So let's review these briefly. I want you to flip back one page. I want you to go back to chapter, um, chapter 1, 
And I want you to look at verse 15. This is the first time that the Apostle Paul uses this expression. He says there in verse 15, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's the first time that the Apostle Paul uses this expression. And so as he's going through and writing this letter to Timothy, the first time he uses it is he wants to emphasize the gospel. This is something you've got to remember. This is something you have to remember in pastoral ministry. This is something you've got to remember whatever vocation you find yourself in. Whenever difficulties come, whenever there is a struggle or a challenge that you have to rise to, the temptation will always be there that you get to do it in your own strength. Paul begins his letter to Timothy, and the first thing he wants to remind him of, the first trustworthy saying that, Paul, that Timothy needs to go back to time and again, whenever he faces challenges and difficulties, is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus saves. The cross is always the solution. The power that God affords to us through the sacrifice of his own son will always, always, always be the answer. And whenever you lack, whenever you struggle, whenever you are dependent, the solution isn't to dig down deep, to grab yourself by your own bootstraps and pull yourself up and to rally yourself to the occasion. We're going to watch a football game here in a couple hours. And after that football game is over... Undoubtedly, you're going to hear players saying, a bunch of the players on the winning team, saying the same thing over again, over and over again. We just had to dig deep. We've got to find that will to win deep inside of us. And the world is tempted to buy into this philosophy that when you struggle, you are the answer to your struggles. When you fail, you have it within yourself to overcome. Now, there is a measure of truth to that in terms of perseverance. But the truest answer to that question is always in Jesus Christ. Paul says, Jesus comes into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. That's a bit of hyperbole. It's a bit of exaggeration, to be sure, but not by much. I mean, the Apostle Paul was the world's first serial killer of Christians. This was his job, and he enjoyed it, and he was good at what he did. And so although we can say that, yes, by, but for sure, Paul is exaggerating a bit. He's not exaggerating by much. He says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I am a sinner. I'm the worst of sinners. This is the trustworthy saying. Paul is saying to Timothy, when you get into trouble, when difficulties come, remember that Jesus saves, and you need his salvation. First aspect, Jesus and only Jesus saves, not you, and you need it just like I need it. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Then he makes this statement here. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, he desires a good work. But he prefaces that statement with, this is a trustworthy saying. Trustworthy saying number two. Skip over now with me. Still in 1 Timothy. Go to chapter 4, verse 7. Here's the next trustworthy saying. He makes the statement here, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
There is a now and there is a hereafter. And what we need to be doing in the now is godliness. Because godliness works now and it also works hereafter. That's what Paul says. And then he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because, notice the purpose clause. Because the reason we toil and strive is because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, in the first trustworthy saying, he says, Jesus saves, and I need his salvation, and you need his salvation. In the second trustworthy saying, he's saying, let's be godly because... Jesus saves. Do you notice those statements there? One is saying, let's get saved because Jesus saves. And the other one is saying, because Jesus saves, let us strive for godliness. Paul is hinting at the fact that there is human responsibility, that we do have a moral choice to make. But that decision is always first and foremost grounded in the gospel. Now flip over to 2 Timothy. I'll show you this just briefly from the other passages, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we will more thoroughly exegete these passages as we come to them. Three, four years' time. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We've got to go through the Word of God verse by verse. Amen? Amen? However long it takes. He's beautiful and he's worth it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus for uh, that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory now he's saying everything i go through everything i suffer all the hardships all that i experience i do it for the elect that they can see it and so be saved but who's doing the saving jesus What's Paul doing? He's striving with all his might, and he's getting beat down. And yet in that beat down, he still says, hey, Jesus saves. And my beat down that I'm taking here, all my suffering, I'm going to stay true and loyal to Jesus because what I suffer is used by God to bring about salvation for others. He goes on, verse 11, this saying is trustworthy for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, in that passage, the implication is loyalty. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, even when you are tempted to quit, when you want to just throw in the towel and walk away from it all, the exhortation is, number one, what you're going through is for the sake of other people and their salvation. Number two, you've got to be faithful. You've got to stay true to Jesus Christ. We cannot apostatize and turn away and say, Jesus is no longer worth it. Jesus is no longer beautiful. Jesus is no longer our Savior. He cannot deny himself because he is the Savior. And so if we deny him, he has no choice but to distance himself from all those who will deny him and reject him and apostatize. 
But hidden within that is this encouragement to persevere, to continue in the struggle because Jesus saves. Now go with me to Titus. This is the exhortation to Titus. This is chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 5. The context again makes it clear. If you're not hitting on these themes, they're pretty straightforward. He saved us not because of works done. This is Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't earn our salvation. But, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. Notice that. This saying that I just said is trustworthy. And, he goes on, I want you to insist upon these things. Now, he's writing to a slightly different guy, Titus, no longer Timothy, but it's the same idea. When you get down into the nitty-gritty, when life gets tough, there is a certain truth you have to come back to that you have to remind yourself of. There is a trustworthy saying that you have to lean on, and it's this. Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ saves. Not because we deserve it, but because he is rich in mercy. And no work of righteousness we do earns that salvation, but he pours it out freely through Jesus Christ. God pours it out through Jesus Christ. And he makes the statement to Titus. Titus, this saying is trustworthy. And insist on it. Insist upon it. Jesus saves. And then he goes on. I want you to insist upon it in order that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You know what the common thread is through all five of these trustworthy sayings? The common thread is this. God takes an action. He takes the initiative. He does a work. He brings about salvation. We are saved. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. He gives it. It is all of grace. And following that gift of salvation then comes human choice, human aspirations, human striving, human obedience. Not that our obedience somehow then earns our salvation. That's illogical. It's a non sequitur. We've already been saved. The salvation that is true has already been given. We're not earning our salvation, but now we are running the race as a result because of the salvation. This is the thing that comes through over and over and over again. And the guy that you would think needs least to be reminded of this, the pastor, is the guy who must most be reminded of this. Paul says this is trustworthy saying. He says it five times. In all of the Pauline corpus, in all of the letters that Paul writes, you don't find this expression anywhere else. You only find it in the pastoral letters. The pastors need this. God takes an initiative. He does a work. He brings about salvation. And then as a result of that salvation, we now aspire to greater things. If you'd asked me when I was an eight-year-old little boy, hey, little Josh, do you want to be a pastor? Does that sound good to you? I would have said no. 
you could have employed the standard joke, they only work for 30 minutes on a Sunday. And I still would have said no. They say, you get to stand up in front of a group of people and you get to like talk to them and uh, they will admire you and sometimes clap for you and sometimes boo for you. <laughs> and I would have said, no. If she said, well, what do you want to be, little Josh? I would have said, I want to do something heroic like being a United States Marine. Never realizing that what I did in the Marine Corps was way, way easier. <laughs> And the Bible says that pastoral ministry is heroic and noble. God never says, in terms of exploits and accomplishment on the battlefield, that they take, there is a time and a place for being a soldier. But caring for God's people, whether you're a pastor or whether you're just a normal individual within the church, always takes precedence against those, those sorts of things. But I never would have desired this before I truly had surrendered my heart to Christ. When I truly did surrender my heart to Christ, and I've shared this with you guys before, I was not a very disciplined student in high school, didn't really care for reading, didn't care a whole lot for thinking, didn't care at all for the Bible, didn't really give you know, much attention to going to church. But when the Lord got a hold of my heart, all the things that I thought were absolutely stupid and ludicrous and a total waste of time became the things that through his transformation of me, they became the things that were most important and most dear to me. And we find that this is not just true of pastors, but this is true of you as well, church member. Flip with me, go Old Testament, go Psalms 37. We're going to travel and we need to be quick because we're just about out of time. Psalms 37. We're going to start in verse 3, but the money shot is in verse 4. Psalm 37, 3. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. So in other words, give yourself to God. Trust in God. And do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Take joy in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart, meaning those things to which you aspire. If you will first give yourself to the Father in heaven, if you will first love God and pursue him, then the scripture says he will work in your heart in such a way that you will begin to aspire to certain things, that you will begin to desire certain things. Now you're sitting here, you're saying, well, first off, that's not explicitly clear from this verse. Not explicit, but we know that's the correct interpretation based upon cross-reference with Philippians chapter 2, which is where I want you to go now. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2, flipping back to the New Testament. Some of you are starting to regret that you closed your Bibles earlier because we're moving today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul exhorting the church in Philippi, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, notice this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, 4. Now, the 4 on the front end of that sentence shows you that uh, what's about to come next is directly tied to what has just preceded it. And he's just said to the church of Philippi, Work out your salvation. For, notice this, it is God who works in you. 
Notice that. God is working in you to both will and work for his good pleasure. Now, Psalm 37 says, if you're delighting yourself in God, he's going to give you the desires of your heart. It's a psalm. It's meant to be sung. It's meant to remind us of certain truths. But Paul makes it explicitly clear that the psalm that we sing in Psalm 37, verse 4, where it says, if you delight yourself in God, he will give you the desires of your heart. Paul draws that out in his letter to the church in Philippi. It is God who is working in you. He starts off with the exhortation, work out your salvation, that is, live out your salvation, because it is God who is working in you to do two things. First, to will, to desire, to want, to aspire to something. So the exhortation from Scripture is that God starts off being the one we should pursue. And when we pursue God, when we go after God, He then will work in our hearts to create a desire, or as it is also sometimes called, a calling. He will give you a desire in your heart. He will put a calling on your life, which you then strive after, not to earn your salvation, but to live out the salvation you've already been given. And you say, well, that's all really well and good, Pastor Josh, but we don't see that in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But again, that expression, trustworthy saying, as we've seen it in context in First, Second Timothy, and Titus, across five different utterances in every single one, minus First Timothy 3, verse 1. So in the other four utterances, in every single one, it is clear that God does a work. And that work transforms and saves, and it makes it so people have different desires. And then they need to chase and pursue those desires for his glory. The reason why Paul wouldn't make that so explicit in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, is because he's writing to Timothy. Timothy's already stepped into pastoral ministry. He's already personally experienced this. And so as we're looking at this verse start to finish, here's what we need to recognize. Pastoral ministry, just like any job, is hard. There are good days and there are bad days. If you would aspire to pastoral ministry, just like you would any job, you do so out of a heart that wants it, that aspires to it, that seeks it. Not, not because you want to be the guy up front being clapped and applauded for and cheered. But because God has put an obligation on you. He's put a calling on you. And now, as a result of the salvation he has worked in your life, aspire to do that calling. Whether it's pastoral ministry or whether you're working as an auto repair mechanic or whether you're working as a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or whatever profession you're in, you need to understand that that profession you're in, it is something which you are called to pursue out of the joy of serving God as a result of the salvation he has worked in your life and you are serving Christ as you serve in that job. 
Now, not all of us will want to have these same desires. We'll not all pursue the same vocation. I'm a dog lover. Some of you are cat lovers. Now, I love dogs. Some of you love cats. When I go home today, my dog is going to run up to me and lick me and jump on me and be super excited to see me and wag her tail. And I will enjoy that. And some of you are going to go home today and you're going to go into your home and your cat is going to sit there (laughs) and look at you and do nothing. If you're lucky, your cat will do nothing. But I dare say for most of us, we're going to go home. We're going to say, here, kitty, 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 you know, I'm home. And the cat won't do nothing. The cat will sit there and raise its paw and look at you with this, like, murderous glare. (laughs) And look at its paw. Like, you know, I'm thinking of killing you right now. (laughs) Now, I would never have a cat. Because God has worked in my heart in such a way that I desire to gather around me people and animals that love me, right? (laughs) But some of you love cats, and God bless you. And I'm glad for you if you love your cat. That's for you. You know, cats need to be loved and cared for, and I'm glad that there are some of you who will do that. And I want to celebrate with you that desire God has put on your heart to love your cat, even though your cat's conspiring to kill you. You know, that's Christ. That's Christ-like, you know. And I, I rejoice with you, for those of you who are cat lovers. I'm not a cat lover. And this is true for our jobs as well. Some of us will enjoy certain occupations that others of us find really distasteful. Some of us will really, really appreciate pursuing a calling that others of us will look at and never in a million years ever want to pursue. I've shared with you before that I like to watch these, these operation shows on TV where they're like cutting open the guy's legs and intestines and they're like pulling stuff out and blood is squirting everywhere and it's absolutely sickening to me and yet I cannot turn away. I'm just like, oh, I can't watch, but I'm going to watch. Oh, I can't watch. And I could never in a million years be in the OR working on somebody because uh, if I was a nurse or a doctor and they put a scalpel in my hand, I'd be like, oh, you know, that's just not going to end well for anybody. You know, so God bless you who are in the medical profession. The calling on my life, not because I actually pursued this or desired this as a child. The calling on my life is to give myself to a literary work that happens to be the living word of God. Not everybody can do this, nor should everybody strive to do what I do or what the pastors do. But whatever your calling in life, whatever your personality, absolutely reach for that. Because God uses that to bring blessing into the world. On the night of February 18th, 1952, one of the most powerful nor'easters ever recorded in the history of storms off of the Boston coast was recorded. It was one of the worst nor'easters that New England had ever seen. Two oil tankers off of the coast of Cape Cod were literally torn in two by the ferocity of the waves. Think of these super 
oil tankers. And think of two of them in one night being so pounded by waves that the ship's spine was cracked and the ship broke in half. Didn't happen to just one, it happened to two in the space of a few hours. Hundreds of men lost their lives. There were still a number of survivors clinging to the wreckage. The temperature hovered around zero. Ice and frost was forming on the deck of everything. 70-foot high waves, torrential wind, driving sleet. They didn't have the thermal gear that we have today. They were wearing neoprene gloves and rain slickers. They were freezing. And yet four Coast Guard's men were ordered that evening from Chatham, Chatham Naval Coast Guard Station to attempt a rescue in an 18-foot boat. 70-foot seas that snapped an oil tanker in half, not once but twice. And we're going to go out in an 18-foot wooden little bob on the water? These four men waded out into the water. They got into their lifeboat. They set it out to sea to go and attempt a rescue. It was understood, though unspoken, amongst all involved, that they would go out a certain ways, they would make an effort, they would realize it was impossible, and they'd turn and they'd come back. The waves swept across this boat, stripping off the windshield, damaging the throttle, bending the steering wheel, and destroying the radio. The carbureted outboard engine died twice, and they were broadsided on several occasions, rolling the ship over in the surf. If they hadn't been strapped to the boat, they would have perished. Freezing and soaked to the bone in neoprene outfits that would not keep them warm. They were sitting there, and there were four of them, and the three looked at the pilot behind the wheel who was in charge, an individual by the name of Bernie Weber, and they were looking to him to see what kind of a decision he would make as they approached the bar to go out into the deep water, having already had their 18-foot vessel totally destroyed, having been rolled twice. And as they approached the bar, he cut the power and he sat there for a second with his light shining out into the darkness and they were looking to him. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Is he going to take us out into those deeps and attempt a rescue? Or are we going to make pretend and go home and get warm and have a cup of coffee? And as the swells went up and down, Bernie Weber timed it just right and threw the throttle forward and accelerated into the surf try and break out of the bar. He brought home 38 men that night. It is to this day considered one of the greatest rescues in all of Coast Guard history. They recently even made a movie about it called The Finest Hours. If you've seen that movie, you know how insane that attempt was. The movie doesn't even do it justice. Books are always better. Later on, years later, they asked Bernie Weber, what were you thinking when you did that? And he made this comment. Bernie Weber was the son of a Baptist pastor. He said, in that moment, you realize that you're serving God. And though you were absolutely terrified and weak, you receive both strength and courage. And you know what it is that you have to do. You know what your duty is. And you realize in that moment, as I did, that you have to attempt a rescue, believing against belief and hoping against hope. 
that God will meet you there and provide what is lacking. The will to aspire to courage, it is something that is born inside of you for which you can take no credit. I love that quote. It is something that is born inside of you. Men and women of First Baptist Church, God has a calling on all of your lives. Look for that which is being born inside of you by him and devote yourselves to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you, God, that you still do call us to be heroic in all of our professions and in all of our undertakings. And God, I just pray that as we do pursue your calling on our lives, that we do so with a clear understanding that it is you who works in us both to will and to do for your glory, for your pleasure. And I pray, God, that for all of us in this room, as we step out into the world, as we dare to take on great things, to undertake great challenges, that you would meet us there, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the courage, that you would provide all that is lacking, that we might strive for greatness to impact this world for your kingdom. I pray, God, that if there are any here who are questioning that, who are doubting that, that you would remind them this is a trustworthy saying, Jesus saves that they would look to you to provide what is lacking. Do this work among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.